Hello, you're listening to the Sydney Writers Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name is Valerie Koo and you can find us online at sydneywriterscentre.com.au. We're Australia's leading writing centre and you'll find a wealth of resources on our website and blog, including interviews with authors, writing tips and valuable ideas on how to get published. Whether you're interested in writing a novel, short story or articles for magazines, you'll find information and courses to help you get there. Or if you want to hone your business writing skills, we can help you too. Our presenters are the best in the industry. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. Dominic Smith is an Australian author currently living in Austin, Texas. He's published three novels and his latest is Bright and Distant Shores. It follows the journey of an obsessive American collector who travels to islands in the Pacific to collect artefacts for an ethnographic exhibition. Set in the years after the Chicago World Fair, it chronicles the clash between modern and commercial America and the tribal Pacific. In 2006, Dominic's debut novel, The Mercury Visions of Louis Daguerre, was selected for the Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writers program and received the Stephen Turner Prize for First Fiction from the Texas Institute of Letters. His short fiction has appeared in The Atlantic Monthly and has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize. His second novel, The Beautiful Miscellaneous, has been optioned for a film. He currently teaches writing at Southern Methodist University and is on the graduate fiction faculty at the Warren Wilson College MFA program for writers. So, Dominic, thanks for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, tell us, before we get into your latest novel and all of that, just tell us, take us back to when you first discovered that you enjoyed writing and, and more importantly, when you decided that you could make a living out of it. Yeah, I, those are two different things. I think um, for, for me, you know, I'd always kind of written as a kid on, on the side and uh, in high school, I started to kind of become more interested in, in language and discovered, you know, Dickens and Shakespeare, and that kind of took my, my own writing um, in a new direction. Um, so, you know, I, I'd always kind of written as a kid, and then uh, when I was at university, I started to kind of move in the direction of studying uh, creative writing. So that kind of, um, you know, I guess turned me uh, into um, a more serious writer, and I think, I, you know, I first came across the idea probably as an undergrad, that there were people out there who were going to graduate school in creative writing and, and publishing novels. And I think that was when the I first began to get the idea that um, a person could become a writer. Um, mm. and, and so, you know, making a living as a writer is, is a very different thing. And I juggle, um, you know, my own writing with uh, teaching and occasionally some freelance writing. So I think that, you know, if you're serious about um, wanting to make a living as a writer, you have to be kind of uh, limber and, and, uh, you know, look at it in a a pretty pragmatic way and try to, uh, you know, juggle multiple things potentially. Mm -mm. Now, we can all hear your accent, but tell us where you grew up. (laughs) Right. Well, I I grew up in Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I was born in Brisbane. Uh, Our family moved to Sydney when I was about two, um, we lived in the Blue Mountains for a while. And then when I was um, 19, in 1989, I got a scholarship to study in the U.S. And so I've more or less, with a few years uh, as an exception, I've more or less been in the States um, since 1989. 
so you know my my father's American, my mother's Australian, so I'm a little bit of a I'm kind of trapped between two worlds in a little mm-hmm. in a bit of a way. Yeah. Mm. So with your first novel, tell us about how your debut novel came about, The Mercury Visions of Louis yeah. Daguerre. So yeah. how did that come about? And, and you know, some people, their first novel, it takes them 20 years to get there. Some people, it takes them a year to get there. What was your gestation period? Yeah. Um, so I was actually in graduate school uh, in, for writing uh, at the Michener Center for Writers um, here in Texas. And um, I was taking, a, you know, I had a long-standing interest in photography and I, um, I was taking a graduate class in photography and we, we were talking about some of the early um, historical methods. And I came upon the story about Louis Daguerre, who invented the daguerreotype, um, kind of one of the forerunners of modern photography. And there's this story um, about him, you know, using mercury to kind of as the fixing agent in his process, and that uh, there was widespread belief that he died from mercury poisoning and kind of had gone mad um, from mercury vapors near the end of his life. So I got really interested in this idea of Daguerre, started digging in, um, discovered there'd only ever been one biography written about him. And mm. as, it, as it turned out, there was an archive at the University of Texas um, at Austin that had some of Daguerre's original images. So I trotted off to the archive and spent uh, a couple of days looking at um, some of those early daguerreotypes. And there was something that really just jumped out at me as being uh, you know, interesting and kind of haunting about those images and, and mid 19th century Paris and the idea of, you know, one of the inventors of photography going mad. So mm. um, that spawned kind of my research into his life and that period. And, you know, I suppose, you know, um, from that moment on, it was probably a, a two year um, process of, of researching and writing before, uh, before I had a draft of the novel. And when was that? So that was uh, so that was around 2003. I mean, one of the odd things about um, my writing career is that I um, kind of had my my first two novels were largely um, finished at the same time. Um, I, I'd been working on there was some overlap. I'd been working on them um, a little bit in tandem and. One was finished while the other one was kind of coming along. And, and as it turned out, I ended up um, selling them through my agent kind of both at the same time, and they just uh, published them a year apart. So it was, a, you know, a little bit of an unusual circumstance. So tell us a bit about the second novel then, The Beautiful Miscellaneous. Yeah, yeah so The Beautiful Miscellaneous is basically... Um, you know, it's like, unlike the first novel, it's contemporary, so it's not historical. It's set, you know, mostly in the in the kind of 70s and 80s and 90s. It's kind of, you know, within my uh, living, you know, time frame. And mm-hmm. it's, it's basically about the average son of a genius um, who struggles to kind of fulfill his father's expectations. His father is a renowned physicist um, who's, you know, nearly won the Nobel Prize several times. And it's really about kind of... Um, growing up 15% above average and never quite living up to that, you know, that genius father who looms above you. Mm-hmm. Now, you worked on both of those at the same time, and they're both very different. They're set at different times. They're about completely unrelated um, stories, whereas, you know, I can understand, you know, how some writers, they're writing 
the, a couple of their books in their trilogy. So they they've got the same characters, right. they've got the same um, themes. Was it difficult to switch from one to the other? Yeah, I mean, the way I would do it is I would kind of work on one until I got to the point where I was stuck, and then I would go and work on the other. And you know, for for the most part, um, you know, I think I had you know the the first novel was. Um, close to being finished by the time I was kind of, you know, plunging into the second one. So, but there, there were definitely days where I would work on one in the morning and then the, on the other in the afternoon, but they were kind of at different stages. And I, so it was almost like just kind of compartmentalizing the two novels in my own, you know, writing brain. Now, do you do academic writing as well? Because you, you have your work at the university. Right. I don't really, I mean, I've published some, um, you know, criticism and kind of craft essays about some aspect of writing. And, and that's about as academic as my writing gets. Um, but, you know, by and large, still on a daily basis, most of what I write is uh, fiction. Mm. And we're very excited about your latest novel, Bright and Distant Shores. Tell us a bit about that and how that idea came to fruition. Yeah. So um, in a nutshell that, you know, it's, it's set at the end of the 19th century. It's set partly in Chicago and partly in the islands of uh, Melanesia. And the storyline is basically about an obsessive collector, an insurance magnate in the 1890s, who um, sponsors a voyage into the Pacific to bring back some artifacts and also um, a, a, some natives for an ethnographic exhibition. And his idea, the insurance company, this is kind of the age of early skyscrapers in Chicago, and he, his insurance company has, um, for the time, the, the world's tallest building. And so he plans to host this ethnographic exhibition on, on the rooftop of his new kind of landmark building. So the story is basically this collecting voyage um, and this collision course between the people who go on the voyage and the people that they bring back for this very odd um, kind of exhibition. And, and so it features a, a Chicago-born uh, trader. And then on the Pacific side, it features uh, a mission houseboy who has um, the man, the reverend he works for, has just died. And so each of these um, young men are kind of flung out into the world in different ways, and uh, they end up on this kind of collision course in the novel. Um, and and really the genesis of the story was uh some you know a historical event that i heard about that concerned uh friends boaz and uh the arctic explorer robert peary where basically um boaz had been looking uh for ways to study some of the inuit cultures in greenland he'd spent some time up there but Peary, who was a friend of his took it upon himself to bring back uh six inuits to new york um for study when Boaz was there as a curator at the Museum of Natural History. And uh, it was this very tragic story where these six Inuit were brought back and they essentially lived in the basement of the museum. And within a year, uh, five of the six had died. Um, there was a book published and I discovered some New York Times archive articles about uh, this story. And I just got really interested in this idea of uh, this complex relationship between museums and collectors and tribal people when they're brought out of their mm. uh, indigenous context. And have you been to Melanesia? Briefly. I mean, very briefly. Most most of the um, research that I did, because it's kind of set in the 1890s, is, is mm. um, 
lifted a lot from uh, you know the observations of you know missionaries and early not even really anthropologists but travelers who were uh, through this period prior to 1900. So a lot of the research was you know in addition to corresponding with people and researching the botany of a particular island or the the fauna of a particular island. It was also about you know what was going on and what kinds of contact did they mm. uh, these people have uh, during that that decade before 1900. So when you do your research, particularly for the historical stuff, are you do you typically do your the bulk of the research before you start your draft, or do you research as you go? It's a little bit of both. I mean, I think you have to get with historical research, you have to get to the point where you know, uh, you know, I think of it as like you have to know the nouns of the period. You have to know what people ate and what they wore and how they got around and whether there were handsome cabs on uh, Chicago streets in 1897. Mm. Um, because otherwise, you're stopping every third sentence or so to look something up, and that becomes a very um, frustrating way of working. Um, so I think you have to have a base, a base level. But, you know, you get to a point where you, you have an idea that, um, and, and it starts to come alive for you. And then you have to kind of at some point plunge in and, uh, you know, not just get buried in the research and, and really focus on uh, the story that you're trying to cultivate. So mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of, of both. So it sounds that with your stories, you start with that seed of an idea. Do you are you one of those authors that plots it all out, or are you one of those authors that just lets let's see where it goes, kind of thing, yeah. or, or something in between? It, how, how do you do it? Yeah, it's a little bit of um, a little bit of both. Um, I remember uh, being lucky enough to be in a seminar with Peter Carey one time, and, mm. and he described it as you know before he sets out, he needs to know. Uh, it's like a mountain range. He needs to know what's happening on the peaks, but what he discovers is in the valleys, in the riding. And and that pretty much sums it up. I mean, that, that approach of knowing, you know, more or less what I'm aiming for, um, but then you have to kind of leave room in the writing process to discover things in the writing itself. And otherwise, you're just not going to be surprised. And if you're not surprised, there's no way the reader's ever going to be surprised. Mm. Why do you write? What's the joy in it for you? (laughs) That's a a good question. That's a hard one. But, um, you know, it it has to, I mean, for me, writing, you know, it is work. I mean, there's inspiration in it, uh, but I think it's a lot more the case for me that inspiration comes out of the work rather than it drops out of the sky. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm pretty disciplined about it. and, And what I, you know, it's deeply satisfying to create something um, out of nothing, you know, to kind of create something that wasn't there before. And, you know, however flawed it is or whatever, you know, things you wish you could change later, um, it is satisfying to kind of put, put something together in that way. What's the most challenging thing when you're writing a novel? What's the, what's the hardest part of it? I think the hardest part is always, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor has this phrase called, which he, you know, terms of the, the mystery of personality. And in some ways, uh, you know, what I like about that is the idea that um, people are paradoxical, you know, the core of consistency about them, but there's always this element that, that is um, elusive and, and trying to capture that and evoke it and make your characters feel real and alive and like people we know, um, that's always challenging because they're not... Um, you know, they're not cutouts, they're, they're real living uh, presences. And so 
I think that's that's definitely a challenge. And what do you enjoy about teaching then? Because obviously you've been doing that for a while as well. Mm-hmm. Well, teaching, you know, it's for some for some people, you know, teaching is kind of a, a totally separate thing from from writing. It's very different, obviously, when you're writing. You're you know, stuck away in a room by yourself, and it's a very solitary exercise. Um, for me, teaching writing is about bringing some of those ideas and some of the discoveries you've made out into the world. It gets you interacting with people, um, and you get to talk about things that you're passionate about. So uh, it actually fuels my writing in the sense that, um, you know, I, I get to go into a classroom and talk about, you know, plot or character development or whatever it is. And and I often find new discoveries in student work or uh, find new ways of looking at things based on a student comment or a student uh, story or paper. So, you know, there's a sense of, of always um, evolving and also being challenged as a, as a writer. Um, you're, you're constantly challenged. And also, so you're at Southern Methodist University now. Yeah, and then I, yeah, I also teach in a graduate program too, yeah. And that's in Austin in Texas. I understand though you went to University of Iowa. So why did you move to Austin? Yeah, it's complicated. Southern Methodist is actually in Dallas about three hours north oh, okay. of Austin. But, but I, live, uh, I live in Austin. I'm up here for part of the week. Uh, I'm here as a visiting uh, writer and assistant professor. Um, so yeah, I graduated from Iowa, which has a, a great writing program, and that's where I studied anthropology and writing as an undergrad. Um, I really came to Texas for, um, I got a fellowship in 2000 uh, to study at the Michener Center for Writers, which is a, a kind of a three-year MFA program in, in writing. So that's kind of how I ended up in Texas. I understand you do short stories as well, which are very different. It's a very different process to to writing a novel, and it's a much quicker gratification, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. What do you enjoy doing more? I think I'm much more of a, a novelist by disposition. I mean, I like the um, the novel is a big enough container. It affords you a little bit of um, room for um, – you know, diversions, and, and sometimes those can be fulfilling for the writer. Hopefully they're not too taxing on the reader. You probably have to rein yourself in. Um, mm. But, you know, short stories are just so, um, they're so, uh, you know, such a short amount of space in which you have to evoke an entire uh, world and, you know, a, a moment, a kind of dramatic moment. And so it's very challenging. I think, you know, I, I prefer the novel. I really deeply admire people who are masters of the short story because I think it's a incredibly, incredibly difficult um, form. Mm. So with the novel, it obviously takes a much greater length of time. How do you maintain that motivation? And do mm-hmm. you have some kind of writing routine when you're writing? Do you actually have some kind of routine or ritual that you stick to? Yeah, pretty much. Um, you know, I think one of the things you have to do as a writer is discover um, what your uh, when your creative window is. And for me, you know, if if you're like me and you're a, a morning person, um, you have to try to organize your life so that you can preserve your mornings. Otherwise, um, you know, if I were to try to write, you know, after 8 p.m. at night, uh, I wouldn't have a writing career. There's just there's nothing of me left <laughs> in the evenings for the process. So. Um, so, you know, generally if I'm working on something, it's, uh, you know, I'll work on it from say eight or nine in the morning and try to work for, you know, two to four hours, you know, five days a week. So, uh, and I try to do that without 
distraction, without phone calls, without uh, emails, and just basically kind of, um, you know, a little bit lock myself away so that I can just, you know, focus on getting back into the work. And do you have a particular place that you write? Is it in, you have an office at home or? Yeah, or do you, yeah. yeah. I have a yeah. I have a study which is, is set up. You know, books are important. Um, you know, I have kind of all my books in there, and uh, you know, that sometimes if I'm feeling particularly locked out of the process, I might pick up you know a, a book of poetry and start reading just to kind of feel some engagement with language um, as a way of warming up uh, and getting back into the process because it's. On some level, I think writing is muscular. You know, if you're a jogger and you don't run for two weeks and then you go back out there, it's painful. And so, you know, once you're in this kind of daily, um, this in this daily habit of writing, I think it's it's easy to just keep it up and keep going than it is to stop. And getting back into it's always very painful. <laughs> so when you come to the end of a book, then, and you've, you know, it's, I'm sure it's quite a relief. But then you've got your next one to start on. Yeah. Is it hard to get in, get back into it? Then it is. It is, and there's a way in which whatever you've been working on. I mean, you know, this bright and distant shores. I mean, I've been working on it for, for you know, from the beginning about three or four years, and so. Mm. Uh, I've been inside of it for a long time. And the first thing that happens when you go to work on something else is there's this residue of mm. the old novel that just clings to the writing. And I think, you know, the first, um, you know, the first hundred pages of, of something that you knew that you're working on, you're always constantly, you know, checking those, uh, you know, phrases that feel too familiar, uh, things you've used before, and uh, you just kind of have to get that the previous work out of your system, and that's uh, takes a little while, I think. And obviously, you write fiction, but some of it's based in, um, you know, history and facts. When you create your characters mm-hmm. from nothing, well, from not knowing them personally, yep. obviously, yep. how do you flesh them out in your head? Is it something that has to happen at this mainly at the start, so you can you know what they can do and are capable of, or? Or do they develop? How do you actually get to know your characters? Yeah, the main ones? That's, a, that's that. That's the that, that's the big mystery. I mean, I think um, you have to have a you know a strong enough sense of of what kind of a character you're dealing with before you set out. But by the end of a novel, at least the first draft of a novel, you're constantly discovering new aspects of them, or things come into question, or, or assumptions you had are suddenly. Uh, they don't they don't seem reliable and so um, you know I think there, there's you know there's a left brain and a right brain um, process here you know the left brain is you can think about a character as, as being made up of, of different aspects you know characters have psychology they have physiology and they have sociology you know what whether they grew up you know religious um, in the south or you know they grew up agnostic in the north all of that has a bearing on a character but then mm. there's this other aspect um, like I mentioned with the idea of the mystery of personality um, there's an elusive part of, of human personality that um, is, is difficult to quantify. It's difficult to, to get on the page. And I think that's the part you're always um, pushing up against, trying to evoke it, trying to understand it, uh, what's driving a person, uh, mm. why do they act in a certain way. Um, and in some ways, there's some, you know, there's some similarities with something like anthropology, because an anthropologist is looking at a situation asking, why do these actors do this thing? You know, mm. what is it 
what's the cultural map that makes mm-hmm. them want to choose A over B? And a writer is doing a, something that's a little bit analogous to that. Mm. So when you are discovering those aspects of their personality, are you actually discovering them as you write or do you think them through and then write down what happens? Do you know what I mean? I think it's a little bit, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I mean, I definitely keep a lot of moleskin notebooks about, <laughs> you know, everything I'm working on in a novel and it, it's kind of, you know, untamed uh, chaos. But mm. at some point I'm starting to uh, filter notes into categories and into little sketches about a given character. So there's that kind of preparation. And then, um, you know, I think as you develop a character and as you're you're writing, you discover moments that you had no idea were there. And so once you discover a moment that surprises you, it might change the way the character has to be written. Um, Mm. and, And so you find yourself doing both. So, you know, you're preparing in advance, but then also allowing yourself to be surprised by what's, uh, mm. what you find in the text. Now, you said the Brighton Distant Shores took about three years. That's yep. quite a long time in life. Yep. So yep. And by the end, um, are, you, are you over it or are you a bit missing it? <laughs> no, I'm definitely, I'm definitely over it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, I think the funny thing is that uh, and, and something no one really tells you when you set out to, to publish a novel is that by the time a novel is published, you're usually, um, it's no longer such a living thing. It's, it's most alive for you when you're writing it, you know, mm. when you're, when you're mm. burrowing into a, a first or second or third draft or whatever yeah. it is. Um, and so, you know, you're kind of over it, but then there's this great thing where you've left it for a while and it's about to come out and you have to think about, you know, ways to talk about it again. And you, and you kind of have, um, there's some distance there. And so you kind of go back to it with some fresh eyes. So that's, that's kind of a nice place to be. You don't feel, um, when you're writing and I think you're completely blind to, uh, it's, it's flaws and it's quirks. And, you know, after a year or 18 months, when it comes out, the time lag between when you sent it to, an agent or an editor and when it's actually coming out, it's, it's a different thing and you ha- you're a little bit more um, dispassionate about it. Mm-hmm. So are you writing your next book now? I'm, I'm thinking about it. <laughs> have you got, is I'm, it clear in your head? Have you got how far into it, yeah, into thinking? Well, are you? I'm kind of, I'm, I'm circling around. I mean, I have some ideas and I'm usually driven by um, an idea or a world or a mm. terrain that I'm interested in. And, and this is definitely, uh, it's somewhere, it's somewhere, you know, I've had a contemporary novel and, and two historical novels and this somewhere is somewhere in between. It's, um, I'm interested in an Australian actor, a character who's an Australian actor who comes to New York city, uh, in the late 1950s, kind of at the height of the beat, um, kind of bohemian scene. Mm. And, uh, so it's a little bit about kind of artistic, culture and there's kind of some of the world of painters in there and, and actors. Um, but it's, it's going to kind of start in the late fifties, I think, and come through to, uh, a more contemporary, um, time period. But, you know, it's, it's early days and it's kind of vague, but I just have some inklings of where it's going to end up. Are you watching Rod Taylor movies or, <laughs> or <laughs> <Right>. movies? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I have been, you know, it's funny because with this book, um, I've been reading, uh, you know, I had been reading a lot of the 
archives of, you know, the Chicago Tribune, which, you know, in digital mm-hmm. format dates back all the way to the 1850s you can get access to. And, wow. and I'm, you know, I've discovered that is a great writing tool. And so I'm, I'm reading a lot of the Village Voice um, in, mm-hmm. in archive form, although it's not all online. But, uh, you know, there's some great ways to try to obviously capture what, you know, what a particular period felt like. And, um, you know, films is definitely a, a great way. Mm-hmm. And so what's your advice to uh, people who are listening to this and they're budding authors and they hope to one day, like you, have three of their books published? What's your advice mm-hmm. to them on what they should do? Well, I think, you know, the first thing is just to make sure you keep writing um, and to accept that there is a period for almost all writers of um, prolonged rejection. It's just kind of part of, of the writing um, trajectory. And so not to be dissuaded by that. Um, and, you know, I remember some advice that uh, a writer gave me um, in grad school, a writer named George Saunders, an American writer. And he said, you know, you have to you have to discover the stories that only you can write. And um, I think what what I like about that advice is that, you know, you you, in writing workshops, you come upon a lot of the same kinds of stories or stories that feel familiar. And when as a writer, you start to really mine your own fictional terrain and your own vision and voice um, and and find things that are really unique to your um, background or aesthetic or whatever it is, um, that I feel like is an important um, moment. And, And so trying to get there, thinking about what that would be, um, you know, that would certainly be some advice I would give. And uh, just to, you know, to keep on and and to do the work and show up and then, you know, hopefully inspiration comes out of the work if you show up and do it. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Dominique. No, thanks so much for having me, Valerie. I appreciate it. You've been listening to the Sydney Writers' Centre podcast on writers and writing. My name's Valerie Koo. You can find us online, including details about our courses, seminars and online learning, as well as information on our regular competitions where you can win books, movie tickets and literary experiences at www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au or visit me on my personal website, www.sydneywriterscentre.com.au ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, K-H-O-O.com. Thank you for listening.